You know what we have we have cycled through some um, we have cycled through some electricians, plumbers, uh, carpenters. It's really just about finding the right ones and aligning with them. And we've been able to take you know some of those trades people that we use in our outdoor design build business and transfer them over to the other business, uh, the flipping business. And that's just that's just made for how we've you know it's just finding good people. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right. Today we are with Beth Underhill. We are super excited to be with her today. She is the founder of Lifestyle Equities and she does a lot of cool stuff in the Caribbean, and we're really excited to be diving into her hotel investment strategy. But Beth, before we get into that, we'd love to kick it off with a story. So could you tell us one of the craziest real estate transactions or experiences that you've faced thus far? Well, um, I feel like that's a loaded question because I feel like real estate lends itself to a lot of crazy stories. Um, however, probably the craziest story that I've encountered, and I'm, I'm going to include my husband as part of this because it was a we thing, uh, was our very first flip. So we were able to get two properties under contract, and we had aligned ourselves with a contractor that we had actually been doing some business with in our other construction company. Um, he was gung-ho, excited to partner up with us on these, on these two flips. And um, we started off with our first one, and it seemed like things were going in a positive direction. Um, we got the second property under contract about a month, month and a half later. Um, and then all of a sudden, we, re we started seeing some, some things that, that weren't making a whole lot of sense. We kept started to get the excuses that you would hear about. Um, excuses as far as, oh, you know, I, I've got this to do, I've got that to do, or my guy's going to be there, or, or et cetera, et cetera. And we've all heard the excuses, and, and there's, there's so many of them, I can't even think of them. Well, we had partnered up with an investor, and between the three of us, my husband, the investor, and myself, we decided we were going to have a meeting with um, the contractor and figure out, like, what's going on? Let's get this project, both projects actually, on track so that we can, you know, kind of keep to our timeline. And, and we knew at this point we weren't going to be sticking to what we had perceived to be the timeline initially. So, um, of course, he made all these empty promises. Oh, by July, we're going to have these, both of these properties on the market. And this is May. This is like the end of May. I'm like, are you kidding me? How are we going to have two flips? And we're not talking about like small budgets with these flips. We're not talking about $20,000, $30,000. We're talking about $150 for one and closer to $200 for the other. So there was a lot of work that was to be done with both of these houses. And, you know, of course, the month of June, um, you know, rolls by, we get to July, and of course, we are nowhere near completion whatsoever. So the investor met with the contractor, they had a meeting, um, and of course, more empty promises, and that just kept going on through August, September, into October, and then finally November rolled around, and everyone started to get very fired up, and there was a lot of... Uh, messages, um, verbal and text messages exchange. Uh, needless to say, we ended up firing this contractor. So contractor gets fired. You know, he's all hacked off. He goes and he gets all of his tools, equipment, you know, ladders, et cetera, et cetera. And 
then he starts sending threatening text messages to my husband. Um, threatening in, in so much as we were starting to become a bit afraid for our life. And, um, you know, we're like, hmm, what do we do with this? Well, the icing on the cake was a few days before Christmas, he sends a picture of a scope and a rifle scope. And he says, look what I got for Christmas. And he sends that to my husband. And we thought to ourselves, okay, this is it. This is, we can't have this. Um, this is somebody that is clearly not stable right now. Um, and we were kind of fearful for our life. So we sent everything over to um, our lawyer and we were able to get a uh, temporary rest restraining order against this um, particular contractor. Um, but then within the next I would say 15, 20 days after getting that temporary restraining order, he actually filed liens on the property. And of course, because these were considered um, commercial properties, you know, you have a bit longer period of time to file them than when you do with uh, residential properties. So he files liens on the property and he files them for the full amount of what he was supposed to do. Not from what like he actually did, but what he was supposed to do. I thought to myself, this guy is like off his rocker. This is absolutely nuts. Like, how is how is he even getting away with this? And how do you get away with something like this? But contractors get away with it, right? And in Ohio, they tend to favor the laws for the contractor, not necessarily people like ourselves. So um, we end up, you know, kind of going back and forth with this gentleman. And in the process, we are finishing the properties. Um, he, um, we do set, we, we do actually get a trial date where he has to show up in court, you know, against a judge or to a judge and so forth. Um, we ended up getting a five-year restraining order against this, this particular contractor. However, the crazy part about it is that we actually ended up having to pay this contractor some monies just so we could get the liens taken off because we had both properties under contract um, after finishing them up. So, you know, I think the the wild part about that is 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 that you know here a contractor can pretty much do just about anything they want to, um, including you know sending pictures of rifle scopes and so forth and making people fearful for their life, but still get paid dollars in order to go away um, with a lien on a property. And you would have thought after those first two flips that we would have walked away from the deal. But nope, we just kept going back for more. And uh, here we sit four years later, having put $5 million of single family homes here in the Cincinnati area. Um, and it hasn't all been like that. Um, but I would say we've probably had more negative experiences than we've had positive, unfortunately. So, yep, there's my crazy story. So well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. And there's so many things about the story that, that fascinate me. I mean, one of which is the fact that you're continuing to go on in these experiences, but let's dive into the story a little bit. So like my first thought, like he sends, he sends you threatening messages, which seems to show intent to harm. And then he sends you a picture of a scope. Like, did you guys consider maybe moving down the criminal prosecution route for, I would think there would be something criminally illegal about sending a picture of a rifle scope to somebody after you've already threatened them. Um, I would think that as well, too. You know, I think we just took our lead of our lawyer as far as, you know, what what we could do. Um, and he was certainly more well-versed in um, kind of our chances of being able to to kind of get like that restraining order versus and, and also, you know, sometimes you have to factor in 
all of the money that you're spending anyways, like how far do we want to take this? You know, what, what do we really, you know, I mean, aside from, I mean, he, he left a couple of threatening voicemails. He sent a, a few threatening text messages. Um, I, I think we, we, we sort of thought, you know, he was upset, right? He was mad. He wanted to get paid. That was really the driving force behind it. I think we never really fe felt like he had intent until we received the, the rifle scope picture. So, you know, unfortunately we just followed like what our lawyer's advice was and maybe it was bad advice. I don't know. So, hmm. yeah. well, you guys got through it. You're still alive. So, you know, that's yeah. great news. One of the things I love about the entrepreneurial spirit is the ability to learn from certain situations. And mm -hmm. so now that you went through this and realized the law seems to be heavily in favor of the contractor there in Ohio, what are some steps that you're doing differently now to protect yourself? Uh, we are the general contractors now. We no longer have um, a, ge a general contractor that is overseeing the projects. We decided that after those two scenarios, we thought to ourselves, no way will we go through that again. And we're going to be the general contractor. We're going to be in charge of, you know, the plumbers, the electricians, the carpenters, and so forth. And and that way we have more control over. I mean, it's a lot more work. Trust me, I'd love to be able to hand it off to a general contractor, pay him, you know, a, a percentage of the project um, for all the time and effort that goes into his coordination of it and so forth. Um, but it just doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, when we can control it and we know what's going on and and we can control the expenses and the timing of it. Um, it's, it's just made for a much better experience all the way around. Um, so that's, that's what we learned. Like no more will we rely on somebody else. And we knew we were capable of it. I think the problem for us was that we were so busy with our other business because we, we have a very successful outdoor living space um, contracting company. And, and, you know, of course we were heading into some very interesting times, especially with COVID. COVID like shot that business through the roof. We, we never had so much business in our entire life. I mean, booked out for, you know, a year, year and a half in advance. Um, so we learned, you know, that, yeah, we could manage it. Um, but at first we didn't think we could. We thought, well, we want to be a little bit more hands-off. Um, and sometimes being hands-off, um, you know, you end up paying the price of, of uh, those contractors just um, telling you what you want to hear and not following through. 100%. Real estate can be fairly abusive at times to the <laughs> practitioners, to us. It's almost like the, the analogy that's coming to mind is, is one where like you have this abusive boyfriend or girlfriend that is continually abusing you, yet you come back. Mm -hmm. It seems like there might be some of that going on for you. I know there has been for me in my life. Mm -hmm. Can you describe like, why do we keep coming back to this thing? Like, what does it do so well for us that we are willing to continue to take these challenges and these abuses? Um, I think as entrepreneurs, we always think that we can figure it out. Like, okay, so, so we've had this negative experience and we can pivot and we can, you know, maybe go in a slightly different direction and, and figure out how to, how to make it right, how to, how to set the ship, you know, straight. So I know I've always had that. I'm kind of that whole, like, okay, if it's broke, I can fix it. Um, I've been that way with people with myself, with, you know, businesses and so forth. And if it's not working, well, there's got to be a way to do it. And I think because I have that entrepreneurial like 
heart, um, not really wanting to be working for anybody else but myself, I am willing to go back. And I, I think, you know, after reading and listening to podcasts and people who have been very successful, um, you know, they've failed so many times. I mean, how many times did Thomas Edison fail, you know, before the light bulb, right? So I tend to, to be that sort of individual, like, okay, if I'm going to keep failing, something is going to work. And I, I guess that's why I keep coming back. I mean, maybe you could call me stupid, but I, I don't think so. You know, I've enjoyed the experience and I wouldn't change it for the world. I really wouldn't. Absolutely, because we grow through these challenges, right? Especially to people that think that we could do anything like that. It's like, I can do it. If it's broke, I could fix it. You could learn from everything. You learn more from your, your failures than you do from your successes, really. I mean, right. um, without a doubt. So, I mean, I would love to discuss how you've managed to streamline the subcontracting that you're doing. Because you just mentioned that you're doing, you've made millions of dollars in revenue off these flips, which means that you're managing multiple projects at a time. So, I would love to discuss how you streamline that process to make it as simple as possible for you. You know what we have we have cycled through some um, we have cycled through some electricians, plumbers, uh, carpenters, I mean, you name it. And it's it's really just about finding the right ones and aligning with them. And we've been able to take, you know, some of those trades people that we use in our outdoor design build business and transfer them over to the other business, uh, the flipping business. And that's just, that's just made for how we've, you know, it's just finding good people and, you know, you pay them, you do what you say. Um, you know, if the bill is going to be maybe slightly higher than what you could get from Joe Schmo down the street, I would rather pay more money for someone that I know I can count on than the alternative. And so, so yeah, it's, it's just been really, and it's taken time. Trust me, it has taken time. I mean, we've been doing this since 2018 and after, you know, those, those first few, uh, you know, debacles, um, we, we've definitely gotten on the right path and, and we've produced some, you know, and here's the thing we tend to, uh, we tend to gravitate towards some of the more like higher end type flips where we're adding, we're popping a roof um, and we're adding a second story on, or we're adding a thousand square foot addition. Uh, we just finished um, in, uh, a townhome that uh, was built in 1880 and completely took it down, you know, to the studs, um, had to put beams in whole nine yards um, and, and redid that one. We have it under contract, thankfully so, especially given this market right now. Um, so, you know, it's really just the alignment. And that, one, that process, again, that one went smooth. It took a little bit longer because of materials, but every single contractor that we had on that particular job, I mean, they put their best foot forward and they did what they said they were going to do. So the process was, was really quite easy. Love this. And it just shows that like when you get into something new, you're going to face these challenges. And as long as you tackle them head on with intentionality and continue to learn and adapt, you eventually conquer those problems and they become very infrequent or just non-existent. One of the things that is unique about you and what you're pursuing is your out of country and hotel style pursuits, which are really exciting, you know, in the Caribbean or Caribbean, depending on your, your dialect. Are there any pirates out there doing, you know, in, in the labor force out there? Or give me an example. What, what's it like owning these hotels in other countries? You know, it's very interesting. And, and, and this is actually like hotel ownership outside of the United States is becoming um, 
uh, it, it, there's there's just been this influx of of you know high net worth individuals and um, investors like myself teaming up with other investors wanting to go purchase these types of assets. Um, you know, COVID really hit. Uh, the Caribbean, Caribbean, however we want to say it, um, it hit those areas very hard because of travel and tourism, right? Nobody was able to go out of the country. Nobody could do anything. So they were solely reliant on, um, you know, the the travel within and or the tourism within. And that was almost virtually non-existent. I mean, we all were, you know, shut down, not doing much travel and so forth. So um, so what we found um, is that there were many opportunities um, of individuals who, and what we found, there were a lot of like Europeans who owned hotels and they were like, you know what, we don't want to go through this anymore. We just want to go back to Europe and, and just live our life. And we want to give this to somebody else. And when I say give, they were like literally, you know, early on giving these hotels away. Um, a lot of them were offering seller financing because of course they knew, you know, banks were going to be a little bit apprehensive about loaning, especially Especially, you know, in a very tourist-like environment, like who's going to be traveling there? We don't know if we're going to have another pandemic, whatever the case may be. But I will say this, the one thing that you can count on there is the labor force. You have more access to a labor force than what you do, like here in the United States. And they're more um, willing to work. Um, you know, you hear now where, you know, some people are like, oh, you know, I, I'm not going to work unless I get, you know, X number of dollars, whatever the case may be. Whereas there, you know, that's what they depend on. They depend on people like ourselves who are traveling to the Caribbean that want to vacation or, or maybe stay for a while and, and work, you know, remotely, whatever the case may be. So, so it's been a very interesting dynamic. And what has also happened too, is the governments have really stepped up because they see the opportunity and and they're like, you know what, we need to start doing what we can to attract more investors um, here. Um, you know, the, the airports, they've started to really upgrade a lot of the airports. I mean, there's plans in, in multiple locations to improve the airports so that more private uh, more private planes can actually land um, because there's a lot of that going on um, as well as um, and, and because of that too you've started to see um, you know I follow this uh, there's a um, there's a journal it's called the Caribbean journal and um, so I get a newsletter every single day of anything that's happening uh, down there or down in that particular area and you know probably I would say once every, three or four weeks now, probably for the last four months, I've received an, you know, in within that newsletter, something that says, oh, you know, American Airlines is now flying to or adding flights on to this particular location. And so you're seeing more and more flights from the United States, from Canada, actually being added on to those areas. So, so it's a lot, a lot's going on. Now, banks are still a little bit, you know, hands off and things have cooled down, of course, simply because of, you know, interest rates and whatnot. Um, but the private money, um, private money is definitely going after it. And, um, I, I think there's, you know, definitely, uh, I think I was reading the other day, some hotel chains that, you know, looking to add, you know, 30 more hotels in and around, um, you know, places like the Dominican Republic and, um, you know, the Bahamas and so forth. Um, we ventured down to the Bahamas um, 
over the summer to actually go check out um, a hotel on a place called Cat Island. I'd never even heard of Cat Island. And here we were taking these puddle jumpers, you know, to and from. Um, I mean, and absolutely, some of the bluest water we've ever seen. Um, stingrays, sharks, the whole nine yards. I, I, just incredible. I mean, the deal did not work out for us, unfortunately. But there's just a lot of untapped territory. And I think over the course of the next uh, several years, we're going to see a lot of growth down there. Um, so it should be interesting. Absolutely tremendous answer. Um, you've already gotten into this quite a bit, but I mean, I'd like to dive deeper. Like, so obviously we have the whole world. So why the focus on the Caribbean in specific? Did you stumble upon a deal and then found all these advantages that you just discussed or just kind of give me an idea of what drew you to that area? Sure. Um, well, first I'll talk about what drew, what drew me to the hospitality hotels. Um, I used to be um, heavily into hospitality back in my my younger years, um, my previous life. And I, I just have always loved that particular environment. And so as I started diving more into um, uh, the commercial space of real estate with multifamily and so forth, I stumbled upon this gal who um, she was searching for hotels to convert to multifamily. And that was within the United States. And I thought, oh, this is a very interesting repositioning. And I started tagging along, learning more about it. And, and that got me actually in front of a lot of people who, um, who had hotels. And as I started to learn more about hotels, I eventually stumbled across someone who said, hey, have you ever thought about investing outside the United States? And I was like, eee hey, that might be kind of fun. And so, you know, it was just through a lot of networking that I ended up talking to um, several different potential partnerships. And then one in particular had this hotel in Panama. Um, and as I, I kept, you know, building a relationship with, um, with this particular partnership, I thought to myself, you know what, this is, there is a lot of untapped um, potential here. Um, and of course, you know, this was as I started learning more about, you know, with COVID and, um, you know, sellers looking to sort of give away um, their their hotels um, and do so through seller financing and whatnot. I was like, you know what, there's there's something to be to be had here. So I think it was just sort of this like progression. Um, and and then after we went uh, over the summer down to Cat Island, I was like, oh, this is this is someplace that I would like to be, not necessarily there, but just down in the Caribbean eventually, or to be able to have several ho hotels to actually go visit. So, um, so yeah, so the hotel in Panama, once I was able to get an investor into that particular deal, I became part of it. Um, and, and I thought to myself, all right, is there more? Is there more in Panama? Like, why not go look for more, right? So, you know, I've always, I've always been sort of like this bird dog, always looking for things. And so I bring the deals to different partnerships. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's, um, that's sort of how I got into it. Absolutely. Awesome. So is there still people seller financing these things or now that COVID has calmed down a bit or things much more close to normal? Uh, no, there's actually still some seller financing going on. Um, and, and, you know, of course, there's, you know, as, as hoteliers started to see 
the demand for their properties. Of course, they started raising their prices. Um, however, you know, as we all know, that a deal only makes sense if it can pencil out, right? So if it's not penciling out, then sorry. Um, you can always offer a little bit more if you can get the seller financing. But um, but nonetheless, yes, there are still deals out there that um, people have considered seller financing, especially because it's not always the easiest to get financing in um, another country. So to go through the process of that, there's not many banks here in the United States that will do something like that. And then to go through the process actually in the country itself um, can be very challenging. So really for someone like myself and some of the partnerships I have, the best that we can do, unless we were to find, you know, capital maybe in um, Europe or the United States, private equity and so forth, the best that we can do is is raise some funds to be able to put down down payments and for CapEx and so forth and then get seller financing. So. Yeah. Give us an idea. What do these deals go for? And I know it could be a huge range. Are these $10 million deals? Are these $100 million deals? Oh, there's, there's definitely large deals out there. Um, but I've, the partnerships I have, we like to go for more of like the boutique style hotels. Mm -hmm. So maybe something that has like 40 units, 60 units, something along those lines. Um, couple of them that we've looked at ranges have been, uh, I would say as low as 2 million, um, and as high as 17 million. So so that's sort of the the range that that we tend to stay in. I don't want to go any higher than that. I think the raise would be too difficult. I think that investors would would find it to be too risky. Um, I think if you can find something around that, you know, five million um, plus or minus close to that, I think that's a good number. Absolutely tremendous. So when you're looking at these, what are you looking for specifically? Are you looking for something that you could add value to? Or are you looking for something that you could get some instant equity on? What's your goal on the acquisition? So, so it, it's, it's sometimes two different paths, depending on, we've, we've got some investors who are looking for, of course, immediate cash flow. So if there's something that we can go in, it's cash flowing right away, great. Um, but value add, um, obviously, is is definitely the way to go. Um, but really, we, we study the, the areas. I mean, some areas, uh, especially in the, in the Caribbean, are, are growing, sort of like the United States here, you know, where everybody migrated to Florida, right? Um, the Dominican Republic is like just like going through the roof right now in terms of growth. So it's very, it's a very exciting time to get in down there. Um, and we're actually looking at right now a, um, a potential condo hotel that has a number of units that have already been um, kind of condoed off, so to speak. Um, and then the rest of it hotels. And we're trying to figure out maybe how we can, you know, when people aren't staying at their condo, if we can use that actually, if you could, we can use their, their condo, um, and Airbnb it out or do something along those lines or do some sort of, you know, rental arbitrage, something along those lines. So there's a lot of different ways we can go about it, but um, certainly cash flow is always king. And if something's cash flowing and we have to, we can go do a value add to it, then that is only going to improve our cash flow because we can raise the average daily rate um, and then everybody wins. So. Do you do development as well? Would you prefer that the property be already built? Or are you guys okay coming in and buying land or buying something that's partially built? So funny that you ask 
there is a deal that we are actually working on in um, Barbuda, which at first, when I first heard Barbuda, I was like, you mean Barbados? No. <laughs> Do you mean Bermuda? No, Barbuda. Oh, oh okay. And um, it's actually vacant land that we would be developing. So um, we're working on this deal right now. I'm not opposed to it. Um, and the gentleman who's actually spearheading it, he's he's actually done a ground up development before um, down in the Caribbean. So I'm sort of uh, tagging along on this one with uh, with just from a learning standpoint um, and, and here to help raise capital, market, do whatever I need to do, uh, go be boots on the ground if, if need be. Um, but yeah, so we are working on something like that, fingers crossed. Um, we get some good news here this coming week and uh, we'll be able to start pushing uh, this deal forward after the first of the year. How fun. Uh, Tim and I work with a lot of people in various countries on different projects and our, and our own stuff as far as editing and just in general. There's so much work with people overseas these days. One of the countries that I have a passion for is the Philippines. I've been there. I've worked with a lot of people there. Do you see yourself investing maybe in the Philippines? Like, is that, is that a possibility? I wouldn't ever rule it out. Um, just like I never thought I would be in a deal in Panama, right? Um, and that same group that I'm in a deal with in Panama, we've been looking at things in Indonesia and, and uh, Bali. So, so I would say like, I would never say no, right? Um, but I'd have to do more research. I don't know. I don't know enough about the Philippines to, to really say one way or another. Um, but, uh, but yeah, never say never. That's cool. You got me thinking because we actually have some potential opportunities there. And I was just like, oh, that's not my niche. That's not my lane. But just seeing you hop into that lane and do it is so cool. Like, uh, so you've inspired me. So thank you. Well, good, good. Glad I'm inspiring somebody. <laughs> so talk to us. One of the things that we had talked about pre-show was the fact that you compete nationally in, you know, as an athlete. Can you mm -hmm. talk to us about a little bit about that portion of your life and how that maybe impacts what you do on the real estate side? Oh, you know, that's a great question because um, I feel like what I do in the gym translates so much into um, my my life, so to speak, as an entrepreneur. So um, I I never really was big into exercise growing up. And, um, <clears throat> I was introduced to a personal trainer, uh, back in like early 2000. Um, we were at, my husband and I were having dinner at a country club and, uh, this gal came up to me and she's like, I know how I can help improve your game and, and you can hit the ball farther. I'm like, Oh, tell me. She's like, come personal train with me. I was like, well, I've never done that before. So why not? She gave me 10 first, uh, free personal training sessions. So I started lifting and I just absolutely fell in love with it. Um, but I had to walk away for, from it for a little bit, especially when the crash came, we were, you know, kind of watching our pennies and, and so forth, trying to figure out, um, how we were going to pivot in that environment at the time. Um, and then shortly thereafter, I decided I was going to open up a fitness studio. And I wanted to help women. Um, and this was going to be a group fitness uh, facility. So not a lot in terms of, you know, weightlifting, but more so things like Zumba classes and um, stuff like that. So I opened the studio and started teaching the group fitness, but I was like, you know what? I need something. You know, I'm teaching everybody else. I need something. So I decided to enlist the help of another personal trainer. 
and started working out with this gentleman. And as I would go to his gym and, and lift, I would see this, this gal who was training for something. I had no idea what it was. And so one day I decided to ask, um, I'm like, Hey, what's she doing over there? Oh, she's training for a powerlifting competition. And I was like, powerlifting. I've never heard of powerlifting. Like, what is that? I don't, I've always heard of, you know, bodybuilding and, um, but never powerlifting. So I became intrigued, um, started doing some research and I thought, you know what, I think I want to compete. And at first I thought I wanted to compete in the bodybuilding space. Um, but then I realized that the bodybuilding space was too subjective. You know, you, you, work really hard. You put a lot of time and energy into it. You are stretching yourself mentally and physically, especially since you, you basically, you know, can't eat that much or on a very restrictive diet. You're in the gym 24 seven. It feels like it. And I thought, you know what? That's not me. Um, I have a family. I have a child. I don't want to go down that path. And so I thought, you know, I, I really need to investigate powerlifting more. So I did. And, um, and I thought, you know, I'm going to, I think I want to train for something like this. So this particular coach, he was really not the right coach for it. If I wanted to take my goals, if I wanted to, to really compete on a higher level. So I found another coach that was local and he had competed in, um, with Olympic lifts, with powerlifting lifts, with bodybuilding and so forth. So this guy knew everything. Um, so I started with him five years ago. And uh, he told me, he said, for the first year, you, you will not enter into a competition. And I was like, well, then what am I going to do? And he's like, you're going to learn. You're going to learn. You're going to perfect your movements. You're going to become a better lifter. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, that's, that's like so true with like just diving into real estate, right? Like you might not have your first deal for, for like, six months, a year, whatever the case may be, but you need to spend all that time learning so that you understand that when you do get your first deal, you know what to do, you know what to look for. And, you know, you're perfecting all of your underwriting, figuring out what asset class, you know, makes sense for you, aligning with the right people and so forth. So anyways, didn't compete for that first year. Um, finally was able to, I was, I was on a, cloud nine after that first competition, I was like, okay, you know, this has me, I want to do more. And so, um, so I started competing more just on a regional level. Um, and then I thought to myself, well, why not go national? Like, what do I have to lose? Right. Um, and the beautiful thing about powerlifting is that it's divided up into age and weight classes. So, you know, the older you get, you know, you obviously don't want to be competing with 20 something year olds. And, you know, I won't say my age, but I'm definitely not 20 something anymore. So it was, it was rather nice, um, to, to be able to do that. And, uh, um, so yes, yeah, so I, I've competed nationally on, well, one occasion. Um, so I'm, I'm looking to do it a second time, but I have set national and international records. So, yeah, so I, I do find that, um, you know, setting myself up every morning with the workouts just makes for a better day all the way around. What a tremendous answer. I'm so excited for everything that you're doing there. Um, I'd ask you what your numbers are, but then I'd probably be embarrassed when you beat me. So we'll just skip <laughs> that part. What I would love to do, um, because, it's you know, relative. of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I'd love to do, because, you know, typically women don't gravitate towards powerlifting. So for any ladies out there that might be listening, why do you think they should be considering powerlifting as their exercise activity? 
Well, number one, I like the objectivity of it. So either you lift the weight or you don't. And I think on, you know, so many people think like, oh, you know, well, I just got done, you know, lifting, deadlifting 150 pounds, right? Um, and, and a lot of times you don't think you can do more. You know, just when you think you maybe have been, you know, reached your maximum, have been taxed out, there's so much to always be learning through technique, um, through discipline, um, through actually even, you know, getting enough sleep, um, you know, eating so that you can perform your best. Um, so I, I feel like there's just a lot of, a lot that can come along with it. And there is no better feeling than either back squatting or deadlifting some crazy amount of weight and knowing that you just killed it. And I think that just, you know, there, there's a level of satisfaction that comes along with it um, because you can like win every single day in the gym with powerlifting. That's how I look at it. Be, the, the workouts are not easy by any stretch of the means, but I feel like that you can always see the progress because every single time you're in the gym, you're getting like 1% better, even if it's, you know, some Something small, even if it's like I got one more rep in, you know, at that same weight that I that I had two weeks ago, um, you know, something small. And and there's just a lot of little victories that you can take away all the time that you can't always take away sometimes with other workouts. So I'm loving the parallels that are coming from this. So essentially, like in real estate, you have small amounts of weight. You don't have a lot of resistance because you're not worried about getting injured, that type of thing. Small dollar amounts in properties, you're not really that worried about the risk. But people are scared to do the million dollar deals, the $100 million deals, because if they screw up, the consequences can be pretty big. I'm assuming same in, in powerlifting. You start throwing some plates on, the si on, on those bars. The, if the form is wrong, you're in trouble. Right. So can you talk to maybe how do you know when to trust your form, both in powerlifting and in real estate? You know, that comes with time. I don't think it's anything that happens immediately. Um, number one, I have a coach who, um, it's funny, he has cameras in the gym, right? So if I'm in there by myself and he knows I might be there, he might pop on the camera just to watch like what I might be doing. And I'll get a text message from him that says, hey, you need to correct this. And as much as I'm like, oh my gosh, will you stop watching me? I appreciate it. I appreciate that. I also appreciate his continued encouragement. And, you know, he always says that, Beth, he goes, you're, you're always like screwing with yourself in, the, in your head because you think you can't do what I know that you're capable of doing. So I think that, you know, the trust comes from lifting it, like doing it, you know, actually going and competing and knowing that, that you can do it, right? You're on such, such an adrenaline high when you compete anyways, you end up, you know, sometimes you usually like hitting numbers that you wouldn't normally hit in the gym. And when you do that, it just solidifies the fact that, hey, you know what? I'm better than what I think I am. I know I can do more. So for me, it's been a gradual process over five years to be able to trust myself um, with the powerlifting and then also with doing bigger deals. Because at first, I, I mean, I remember I had a flip partner who said to me one day, he said, you know, once we get done with this flip, we need to go look for a hundred unit apartment building and buy that. I looked at him and he had been doing single family rentals for a long time. I looked at him and I'm like, 
like, are you on crack or something? Like, no, we're not going to do that. Like we can't, we can't buy a hundred unit apartment building. He's like, oh yes, we can. And I thought to myself, there's no way. And then the more I actually got into it, the more I started educating, the more I started learning, the more I started having mentorship and so forth, I realized that it is possible. And going after a big deal now, it doesn't scare me at all because I think to myself, well, wait a minute, I see everybody else doing it. I see Facebook posts. I see Instagram posts. I see, you know, you name it, you know, anything from social media and it's always in my face. And I think to myself, well, if someone else can do it, then so can I. And all I need is maybe just a little bit of help, like that coach who continues to help me along the way and the people in my life who root me along, you know, as I, as I train or as I compete. So same sort of thing. I am loving this right now simply because I was drawing the same exact parallels that Matt was almost to a degree. So, I mean, I'll, I'll take it even a step further, right? So, like, when you're exercising with powerlifting, I'm, I'm guessing you don't train to failure, but you're probably training close to failure, right? So, I mean, think of it in an entrepreneurial sense, right? If you do the same thing, if you're really getting the maximum, you're getting as close as possible to failure so that you could keep growing, right? So, that's how the ceiling keeps going up. Right. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. uh, just very cool. I mean, I'll let you take the question well, or go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, and there's been numerous times that I have failed, you know, I haven't been able to, to lift. And there was a period of time, for instance, when I, I hit this number in my deadlift that I never thought was possible. And then I, I could not even come close to that for a period of time because mentally I kept telling myself, I can't do it again. There's no way I can do it again. Right. But that's what keeps me coming back. And so I would say the same thing with, um, you know, just even with those flips, you know, you guys asked earlier on, like, why do we keep going back? Well, I'm not one to give up, right? You know, if, okay, if something didn't work the first time, you know, failed with the first flip, well, then let's figure out how we can not fail again. So same sort of thing, you know, it's, it was, okay, let's work on my mindset. Let's work on perfecting my technique more. Let's, let's do some other ancillary moves that are going to help me to feel more comfortable over the bar to get back to that number and to be able to deadlift it again. So. so now that you have these killer mindsets, this <laughs> inability to fail because you're going to be able to constantly level up your mindset, you're, you're going into these other countries, you're building hotels, you're buying hotels, you're doing all these types of deals. It's only a matter of time before you have a billion dollars in the bank and a hundred lifetimes of cash flow. And when you get to that point where money is of no object, how do you see yourself structuring your time? What would you do with your life? Mm, I don't know that I would do anything too terribly different. I would still be powerlifting. Um, I like to stay busy. Uh, my husband and I were empty nesters, empty nesters, excuse me, except for four dogs. Um, so our daughter's away at school and, you know, it, I... I want to do more actually, um, if I can, um, one goal that I do have is to, um, I have a very dear friend who she was actually our nanny for our daughter, uh, when our daughter was growing up and she since has, um, her own family now, but she has two children that are adopted, um, through foster care. And one thing that I have seen a need for is, um, kids who are in foster care that may be, um, never uh, find a home, 
um, or as they turn 18 or transitioned out of the foster care system, I would love to be able to build some sort of um, group home um, or, or have like several houses that can house these kids as they start to get like on their, on their own two feet um, and be able to provide them educational resources and assistance and help for things like college education, uh, maybe filling out an application for a job, you know, whatever the case may be to help build their skills so they can actually go um, go get on, get on their own two feet, um, and, uh, and just, and just be able to live life, but give them maybe some kind of family environment where they have a house, um, they have their own room, um, they have maybe a common space with other people, but they're able to, um, yeah, they're just able to survive. Um, I think there's just a, a gap for it. There's a real need. And I've, I've heard too many stories um, of kids who have been in, in foster care. And then as soon as they turned 18, they were just, you know, uh, the foster care parents just said, okay, well, we're done. We're not getting any more money from the system. So um, good luck. And I don't think it should be like that. So, so I do plan to do more um, from, from a philanthropic standpoint. Um, I'm a cancer survivor as well. So I'd like to be able to give my time back um, to um, organizations that are near and dear to my heart um, through uh, with cancer as well. So. What a tremendous answer. First off, congratulations on beating cancer. Um, we have learned, me and Matt firsthand have learned a lot of the problems with the foster care system through a previous guest. So I appreciate you bringing awareness to that topic. Um, but let's jump back into business just a little bit. So Beth Underhill, like what are just your plan for the next 12 to 18 months? What is your vision besides, you know, building hotels and things of like that? Well, um, <laughs> so there's four things I write down every day <laughs> in my journal that um, is my gratitude journal and also my vision journal. Um, obviously, I want to acquire more real estate. Um, there, it looks as though there's there's three multifamily properties that we should be closing on by the end of uh, uh, the first quarter of 2023. Um, I'd like to see the two to three hotel um, opportunities that we're currently working on right now come to fruition as well. Um, so there's real estate. Um, then there is uh, marketing for real estate investors. I'd love to be able to help out new investors, um, maybe have things like landing pages and so forth, where they can start to attract um, investors, people who want to invest in them, um, and kind of showcase that. So I've, I've uh, been brainstorming with a, another investor about coming up with uh, something like that for newbies. Um, so there's that. Um, let's see. The third thing is I'd like to do more speaking engagements, um, speaking in terms of, of helping people to understand um, the benefits of real estate. Um, also, you know, having been a cancer survivor, you know, that was a very interesting time. I was, I was still able to do what I could during that time. And, and we were very blessed that my husband could keep our construction business going, but there's a lot of people that end up, you know, maybe being diagnosed with cancer and can't do anything. And if they were to understand the power of passive investing, um, and maybe to have passive income streams coming in to replace maybe some of that income that isn't happening during chemotherapy, radiation treatments, and so forth. I'd love to be able to educate people on how you can set yourself up sooner to be able to do something like that. And then the third thing is, or the fourth thing, I'm sorry, is um, um, I, I, I don't even like bourbon, but I've taken this affinity to 
bourbon barrel investing, and I find it to be really fascinating. So my goal in 2023 is to investigate that more and see if I can't do a deal related to bourbon barrel investing. What a cool answer. So much creativity there. Um, <laughs> Beth Underhill, um, thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business. Um, and to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. So I would encourage you to do something that pushes yourself to your limit within the next seven days because that will raise your ceiling and reach outside your reach. Constantly be reaching outside your grasp. Um, tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable and before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. So thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.